0: Our call to confession this morning is going to come from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There the Apostle Paul writes, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." In this letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he opens uh, with an eloquent and powerful declaration of how the triune God has accomplished their salvation, as well as assuring them of his continual prayer on their behalf. As Paul goes into chapter 2, he spends the bulk of chapter 2 reminding these believers in Ephesus of who they used to be, right? In the verses that we read this morning, Paul writes that they were dead in their trespasses and sins that they were obedient to the spirit of the power of the prince of the air, and that they were children of wrath. Evidently, Paul sees this as a necessary reminder, right? That it is good for them to remember who they were before they were set free in Christ, now this reminder plays a key role later on in later, later later on in the letter when Paul exhorts the church beginning in chapter 4 to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Right this is uh, they're they're no longer to live as they used to live they are called to live or to walk in a new way, right? They used to be this, and now they are this, and so they should live and act as though they are this. They used to be separated from Christ, and now they are brought near to Christ, and so they should live as those who have been brought near to Christ. When we think about this, this is a key concept to our understanding of what it means to live out the Christian life, right? Key to our understanding of following Christ, key to our understanding of sanctification, is this idea of putting off and putting on, Because the truth is that in all of us are remnants of the old man, remnants of who we used to be, who we were outside of Christ. And so as we are pursuing Christ and as we are following Christ and as we are going after Christ, we are called to continually be putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Right? We are called to be continually putting off sin and putting on the righteousness that we have in Christ. And this is something that we are called to do on a daily basis. As we continually encounter the sinfulness that still resides in our hearts, we are called to put that aside and we are called to put on who we truly are in Christ. We are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind, darkened in their thinking, but we are called to walk as those who have the eyes of their hearts enlightened by the Spirit of God so we know who God is, what he's called us to, and how he has called us to walk. And so each week as we gather together on the Lord's Day, part of our act of worship is confession. We come before the Lord and we kneel before the Lord and we are actively seeking to put off the sin that so easily entangles. And we are seeking to put on the righteousness that Christ has won on our behalf. And so this morning I encourage you as we come before the Lord in confession to do just that. To put off sin and to put on Christ so that we might leave here... Walking no longer as the Gentiles do, but walking in a pursuit of Christ. So if you are able this morning, please kneel with me as we confess our sins. Come, let us worship and bow down. We're continuing through Genesis this morning and continuing particularly through the Abrahamic narrative. We find ourselves in Genesis chapter 16. So if you're by, we'll go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 16. We'll read the whole of the chapter. And as we come to this chapter, like I said, we're continuing through the story of Abraham and What we see this morning, looking at uh, Genesis 16, is that Abraham and Sarah make a rather bad decision. Um, They make the bad decision for reasons that uh, they have justified in their own minds, Uh, but unfortunately, um, much like we find with all bad decisions in Scripture, uh, there's consequences to those decisions. And so Abraham, through his actions, brings into his family uh, unnecessary strife, and not just in the moment, but... For generations to come. As we look at this passage this morning, uh, my hope is that in looking at Genesis chapter 16, uh, that we will be encouraged this morning uh, to learn what it means to wait upon the Lord, to be patient and to wait upon the Lord, and within that understand that the arc of our life, the goal of our life, the aim of our life is God's glory. That we are called not to live for our own glory, not called to live for our own name, our own renown. But we are called, created, and brought to the Lord to live for his glory and for his glory alone. So let's look at uh, this narrative together. Begin in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, or Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, <clears throat> the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the opportunity to enter into your word, asking God this morning that you would give us wisdom. Lord, that you would uh, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may understand the hope to which you have called us. Father, I pray that you would guard my mouth and I would say only that which is edifying for us. And Father, that you would be glorified in the preaching and teaching of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we come to this narrative this morning, Genesis 16, um, and you read through it, uh, I think it's difficult uh, as you read through it not to hear echoes of the narrative of Adam and Eve that we saw from Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Now, while there's not the same kind of moral component here as there was in Genesis chapter 3, we do see Abram follow in the same sort of foolishness that Adam did. And much like we saw with Adam, uh, how his failure was really rooted in his interaction with God, particularly in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, where God gives Adam clear instructions on his role and responsibility within the garden. Uh, so too, I think we see here in, Ab- and, in Genesis 16 that Abram's folly uh, is really rooted in his interaction with God previously in Genesis chapter 15. Right? If we remember from last week, Uh, In Genesis chapter 15, Abram questions God concerning his lack of offspring. And he comes to a conclusion that his only option is to uh, uh, adopt uh, a household slave and to make that one person an heir. Uh, God steps into this, denounces that plan, and then reassures Abram that he is indeed going to have a son, his very own son, who will be his heir and from him a multitude of offspring. And God takes them outside, and while they're probably already outside, it's not like they're in a building or something, but he looks up at the uh, stars of the sky, and God says, if you can number these stars, so can you number your offspring, and Abram responds with belief. He believes in the promise of God. As we come to Genesis chapter 16, it's not Abram this time, but it is Sarah who is frustrated over the lack of offspring, and it is Sarah who who devises a plan to address this situation. Now, I think it needs to be pointed out that each of them, Abraham and Sarah, are dealing with and interacting with this barrenness in different ways, right? Uh, Abram, as he looks at it, he sees a lack of an heir. He sees no one to carry on his name, no one to acquire his possessions, no one to continue his family and his lineage forward. As Sarah looks at it, she is weighed down by the weight and shame of her barrenness. Right, as she interacts with this, she sees her inability to provide for her husband a child. Right, and we talked last week about the importance of children, even within the context of Genesis itself, how they're seen as a blessing from God, such that when a woman cannot conceive, when she cannot give birth, when she cannot provide offspring for her husband, uh, it's a sense of curse upon her. And so Sarah is dealing with this situation from a different angle than Abram is. And so she devises a plan, right? She decides to use Hagar, her maidservant, as a means of producing offspring for herself. And so she comes to Abram with this plan. She says, uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, you're going to take Hagar and you are going to give me offspring through her. Perhaps she will provide a child for me. Now you would think that Abram, after just having his plan shot down, Right, would then realize that this is probably a bad idea and would redirect his wife's attention away from Hagar to God's promises. Right, maybe even saying, Hey, listen, I had this great experience last night where God showed me all I'm, I'm assuming this, yeah, there's there's consecutive here he showed me all the stars of the sky and said, This is going to be our offspring, so let's just let's just trust him to do this. He, he also said, I'm gonna have my very own son, from my own loins. And I'm thinking very own also implies that it's going to come from you, right? However, instead of kind of redirecting his wife's attention, kind of shepherding his wife well to say, no, let's not look to Hagar to solve our problems. Let's look to God to solve our problems. Uh, He follows in the foolishness of his forefather and he listens to the voice of his wife. Now, if you remember in Genesis chapter three, when Eve sees the fruit and she takes it and she eats it, uh, it says that uh, Adam listened to the voice of his wife and he took of the fruit and ate as well. And just as Adam's foolishness brought immediate consequences, so the folly of Abram, uh, his decision to listen to the voice of Sarai and take Sarah, Sarah becomes uh, the folly of it becomes quickly evident uh, as Hagar conceives. All right, so Abram listens to Sarai. He takes Hagar. He goes into Hagar, and she conceives a child. And then she begins to look at her uh, mistress. She begins to look at Sarah with contempt. Right, now, it needs to be pointed out that Hagar's position towards Sarah has not changed at all. Abram taking her as a wife does not elevate her at all in this kind of family social structure. She is not a wife in the same way that Sarah is a wife. In fact, we see in the text that she is still under the authority of Sarah, her mistress. But what she realizes is that even though her social status has not changed, right? she's fully aware of of who she is in the social structure, right? Even though she knows that, she now knows she can do something for Abram that his wife Sarah is unable to do, right? Even though she's a second tier wife, even though she is still under the hand of her maid, uh, of her maid uh, mistress, uh, Sarah, she now realizes that she's able to do something that Sarah can't do. She can give Abram a child. And so there's this, there's this pride and arrogance that works up in her, and she begins to look at Sarah with contempt. She begins to think less of her. She begins to slight her. Now, we see a similar situation uh, in 1 Samuel uh, between Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Peniah. If you remember that story from 1 Samuel, Hannah is barren. She is unable to conceive, and the scripture says that Paniah would often, even yearly, provoke Hannah grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Right? So Paniah would would insult, would provoke, would, would essentially would, would make fun of Hannah because of her inability to conceive, her inability to provide offspring for her husband. And here we see Hagar following suit. She notices that even though she is lesser on the totem pole, she's able to do something that Sarah can't do, and she can give children where Sarah can't give children. And just as we saw in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, this poor decision on the part of Abram leads to relational strife within the family, right? We see it clearly between Hera and Sagar, (laughs) Sorry, That was a slip of the tongue, Hera and Sagar. That's an, I just created a new name, but it's Hagar and Sarah. We see it immediately between the two of them as Hagar looks at Sarah with contempt. And this immediately bleeds over into marital strife between Abraham and Sarah. Look at verse 5. <coughs> and Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. And so immediately, his foolishness has not only brought contempt between Hera, Sarah and Hagar, but it has brought relational marital strife as well, right? And so Sarah looks at, at, uh, at Abram and says, may the wrong be on you. This needs to be on you. This is your fault, you shouldn't have done this, the Lord judge between us. But it doesn't just lead to this marital strife. It doesn't just lead to slave and master relational strife, it ultimately leads to generational strife as well. Because Hagar runs away because Sarah begins to treat her harshly, and as she's sitting down by, uh, by a well of water, the angel of the Lord comes to her asking her why she is or where she is going and where she comes from. And she tells the situation. And the angel of the Lord says to return to your mistress and submit to her, and I will surely multiply your offspring so that it cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, this is interesting here because uh, the blessing that is Abraham's to have a multitude of offspring seems in some way here to also apply to Ishmael who's coming about through this kind of backdoor relationship. But it's not going to be a good relationship that exists between these offspring, Right. Uh, The angel of the Lord says in verse 11, behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means the Lord hears, right? He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Or if you're reading the King James, a wild ass of a man. That's a far better translation, I think, right? His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. Right? This is strife. There's going to be relational, generational strife that exists between the offspring of Abraham. Now, we know moving forward uh, that there is strife between the Ishmaelites and between the offspring of Abraham, such that even Joseph is sold to the Ishmaelites as he goes into slavery. Uh, Paul, in the New Testament, looking back on this event, says in Galatians 4.29, in reference to Ishmael and Isaac, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born, in, born according to the spirit, that is Isaac. So Abraham brings all this strife into his family because he and Sarah were attempting to accomplish through the flesh that which, that which God intended only to come about by his power and glory. Right? They were attempting to accomplish in the flesh something that God had intended only, only to come about by his power and his glory. It's interesting if we look back at Sarah's words in verse 2, she says, <coughs> excuse me, she says, I am childless um, for the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Uh, she rightly understands the situation, just like Abraham did in 15, chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, right? They understand that God is the one withholding children. It is God who has closed the womb, Sarah's womb. She's not having kids because God is choosing not to give life. So they both understand why they are childless, that in that, that God is withholding life. Where they get muddled up in it is understanding what God's purpose in their childlessness is is. Right? They understand that God is withholding children, but what they don't understand is why he's doing it. Right? They really haven't gotten a handle on that part yet. Right? Abraham and Sarah are not childless so that they can attempt to find ways to overcome their childlessness in their own power. Right? God hasn't put them in this difficult situation kind of like rats in a maze to see how they figure their way out of it, right? So he can kind of stand back and press and be like, hey, they found the cheese. That's pretty awesome. Didn't think they would do it, but they did it. Way to go, little rats. They're not childless so that they can figure things out. They are childless. So that when every opportunity of human ingenuity and human power and human will is dried up and dusted, and they themselves are just uh, dust almost themselves, that God then can step in and give them a child of promise. A child that only comes about and can only be understood as coming about because God has stepped in and done something miraculously wonderful and glorious and powerful. They are childless, So that the greatness of God's glory may be displayed for generations and generations and generations and generations and generations to come. And this is where they're missing it. This is where they're not getting it. Now, we can't blame them, right? You you would go, well, hey, if I was childless, I would just sit around and wait for that. No, you wouldn't. You would be doing the same exact thing. We would, get, we, would, we would muddle it up the same exact way. How do I know we would muddle up the same way? Because we still do muddle it up. We, we still do muddle things up oftentimes. We still, we, we still do think oftentimes that it's about us trying to do something or us trying to figure this out or us trying to work this out or us trying to have some scheme or some plan or some idea of how we're going to piece all things together when God is just sitting back and saying, no, no. It's not about you and what you accomplish. I love what Jeff said In baptism, And and I'll say this again. Like this was a major shift for me theologically when it came to understanding baptism. Baptism is not about me declaring something. It's not about me saying, hey, look what I've decided to do. Baptism is God shouting from heaven his promises over his people. Right? It's about his glory. It's about his name. It's about his renown. It's about his promises. It's not us standing up and going, look what I did. And I'm gonna let everybody know what I did so that you can be all excited about what I did so that I can somehow get a little bit of this for myself. No. Like from beginning to end, it's God being glorified. It's God declaring his promises. It's God saying, watch what I'm going to do. Like sit back, relax, and check this out because it's going to be nuts. You know what's not impressive? is when two very handsome, virile, attractive young people get together and have a baby. Big whoop. Seen it done a billion times. I did it. I'm handsome, attractive, and virile, right? I've made five babies, woo! You know what's really awesome? Is when two nasty, old, dusty people, (laughs) who should have no business coming together anymore in the bedroom, make a baby. That's awesome. That is awesome. And what's happening here is they're trying to take the awesomeness, right? They're trying to take it. No, no, you're not childless so that you can figure this out. You're childless so that I'll be glorified, so that I will be exalted among the nations, so that my name will be proclaimed. And so they're trying to accomplish in the flesh what only God has brought, is intended to be brought about through the, the power of his spirit. I find it really interesting, too, that Paul latches on to Sarah and Hagar in the book of Galatians, a book which is about trying to accomplish in the flesh what only God can bring about through the Spirit. Now, as we think about this, (coughs) we want to ask ourselves, why? Why did they do this? What what moved Sarah to suggest this? Like, I'm not trying to be crass here, but I can never imagine in all my life, my wife coming to me and saying, hey, I've got a radical idea, why don't you take a second wife? No. So why did Sarah suggest, and why was Abram so eager, right? Because we already know from the scriptures that Sarah is super attractive, right? So attractive that he's even worried about going out of town because he's he's afraid he's going to die and they're going to take his wife. Well, the answer is not too difficult to figure out, right? It's not very difficult. It's impatience, right? Impatience. We all struggle with this. If you say you don't, you're lying. So there's another sin you struggle with impatience. It's easy for us as we read this to lose track of time, right? It's easy for us as we read through the Bible oftentimes to lose track of time. Things happen so fast. It's like verse after verse, chapter after chapter. Like sometimes we, we, don't, we don't understand uh, gaps in time, right? We think, well, God's just showing up at Abram's house like every other day, like, why doesn't he get it? Like, God's, God's coming over for dinner. He's telling him what he's going to do. He's hanging out with them. Showing, they're looking at the stars together. Like, why can't he figure this out? But the truth is, there's a huge amount of time, right? And so it's, at certain points within the, the Abraham narrative, we, we get time markers that kind of let us know what's going on. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 12... We're told that Abram was 75 years old when he started out on this journey. So in Genesis 12, God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's 75 years old. Now, if we jump forward to Genesis chapter 21, we're told that Abram was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So that's 25 years. 25 years. Now, to some of you, that doesn't seem like that much time. To some of you, that is an eternity, right? That's an eternity. I just realized the other day, Annie and I are celebrating our 18th wedding anniversary this year in December, and we've really been together for about 20 20 or 21 years, right? So almost more than half of your life has been spent with me. And we would say that's the better half. When they talk about the better half, that's what they mean, the better half of your life being spent with me, right? 25 years is a long time. So 25 years, 75 years, this promise comes to him. And then 25 years later, covered in nine chapters, is when we have the birth of Isaac. Now here in Genesis chapter 16, (coughs) we're told that Abram had been in the the land for 10 years. So he's 85. Uh, Ishmael's born when he's 86. So we are still, even at the birth of Ishmael, we are still 13 years away from the birth of Isaac. So there's a lot of time that is transgressing here. And so in some sense, we should not be shocked that Abram and Sarah are trying to find ways to solve the problem. Because it's going on year after year, after year, after year, after year, after year, after year, after year. After year. God's saying, you'll have offspring. they'll be like the sand of the seashore. You'll have offspring. They'll be like the stars of the sky. But year after year after year after year, nothing. Nothing. And so we can understand why they started to get a little impatient. They have waited a long time. Sarah has dealt with barrenness for a long time. And the truth of the matter is that there is something so very difficult in waiting. Something very, very difficult in being patient. All you have to do is look at a young child on Christmas morning, right? We've got a nice gap in our home that we've got, you know, a 15 and a 16 year old, uh, well, 14 and 16 year old daughter who, who want to sleep till on Christmas day, my guess is around three in the afternoon. Uh, And then we've got two boys whose goal is to get up like at three in the morning. Like we've had to fight with our boys to say, no, you are going to sleep. We are going to rest. We'll get up at five. That's a normal time. But the boys are just so unbelievably excited and impatient. And they just want to get at it and have fun and celebrate the day. We have family in town. Usually it's a giant party. It's lots of fun. And they just want to get at it. Why? Because waiting is difficult. Being patient can be Difficult, And what's interesting, though, is the, the difficulty of waiting, and the difficulty of patience is that time and time and time and time again throughout the scriptures, we are told to be patient and to wait. To be patient and to wait upon the Lord. Abram and Sarah are trying to accomplish in the flesh what God only intended to come about through his spirit because they are failing to wait upon God. They're failing to wait, to be patient and to wait upon him. And why are we called to be patient? Why are we called to wait? It's because in the stillness and in the waiting, we learn to trust, right? In the stillness and in the waiting on God, we learn to have faith. We learn what it is to trust God in the midst of that, right? It's easy to trust God when everything's going great. That's not too difficult. Right? When everything's moving in your direction, everything's flowing as you want it to flow, everything's going as you were hoping it would go, and as you planned it would go too, mind you. Right? As you planned it would go. That, like trusting's easy at that point. Who doesn't want to trust God? But when it's time to wait, when it's time to be patient, especially when it's time to wait and be patient in the midst of just massive unknown, just like ridiculous unknown, whether that's health, Whether that's uh, financial, your job, your future, whatever that is. Your children, your concern for your children. Whatever it is, in the midst of that unknown, so often it becomes so difficult to wait, to be patient, and to trust. And yet it's in that furnace, I would say, that furnace of waiting and trusting in being patient, that our faith is forged That God makes it hard as iron, pure as gold, certain and strong, and founded and grounded upon him and his promises. If we look at uh, Psalm 37, this is one instance of where we're told to wait and be patient. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 7, it says, fret not yourself. Now, let me stop here for a moment. As I read this, hear this read over you, right? Hear this read over you. Right? One of the things we love about the Psalms is that in the Psalms, we get to interact with the brothers who have gone before us who have, have dealt with hardships and difficulty. We, we, we get to watch them struggle. We get to watch them be afraid. We get to watch them worry. We get to watch them rejoice. We get to watch them come to resolution. Right? So as you hear this, don't hear this as a cross-reference to prove a point in a sermon. Hear this as God's word spoken over you. In your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You notice how those seven verses are bracketed by this call to fret not. To fret not, to not, to not worry yourself, to not become anxious over evildoers. Or those who who seem to carry out evil devices. And in between this, this call to fret not is this exhortation to trust God. And at the heart of trusting God, at the heart of trusting him so that you don't fret is being still before him. And waiting patiently for him. Being still before him and waiting patiently for him. That's a hard message to people who want justice now, who want freedom now, who want resolution now, who want health now, who want children now, who want hope right now, who want financial peace right now, who want a home right now, a job right now. That's a hard, hard truth. To be still, to be patient before the Lord, to wait on him. And yet in that is trusting God. And ultimately in that is peace, so that you don't fret, so that you don't worry, so that you're not overcome with anxiety or anxious thoughts. And this is just one of the many places where we are called to wait and be patient. Now, as I say that, I don't want us to confuse waiting and being patient with inactivity. I don't want us to confuse waiting and being patient with inactivity. Now again, not to be crass here, but Abraham and Sarah were not supposed to refrain or or abstain from marital relations until God said go. Like go now, now's the time, go. Hurry up, don't miss it, go now. No, they were to engage in regular marital relations with one another. They were to be active in their love for one another, actively coming together as one flesh, knowing that at the time that God had determined he would bring forth a child. All right, so waiting and being patient doesn't mean we are inactive. It doesn't mean we just sit back and we say, all right, God, you've got to figure this out. You've got to make it happen. No, we continue to follow the Lord. We continue to pursue him. We continue to walk in righteousness and holiness. We continue to bring all things before him in prayer and supplication. But it ultimately means that at the, at, at the heart of it all, at the center of it all, is us saying, Lord, you will bring this about. You will do this. And I will wait and I will trust in you to accomplish your purposes and your plans. And so wait, wait patiently. Trust in the Lord, even when things look bleak or beyond bleak. And you begin to feel the urge as Sarah and Abraham did to try to make something happen. Don't. It is good that our father, our loving and gracious and kind father puts us in places where we must wait on him. That is good that he does that. It's good that he put Abraham and Sarah in this 25-year waiting pattern. So they could learn to trust him. So that we could learn from his trust in the Lord. Because we know where the story goes. Right? We know it's moving towards Genesis 22 where he's told to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and offer him up as a burnt offering. And what's nuts is that at that point, we see an Abram who fully trusts in the Lord and says, me and the boy will come back when we're done worshiping. He's learned through this crucible of time and patience to trust in God. Now, as we close this morning, I have no idea what time it is because the clock is broken. It could be 1.30 in the afternoon for all I know. I just want to bring one point, one major point of application out of this text. And that is, as we look at the situation in Genesis chapter 16, where Abram and Sarah devise this plan that doesn't work out, that ultimately blows things up in their family and for generations to come, at the heart of it, what we need to remember is that our lives are meant to be a testament to the greatness and the glory of God, right? Our lives are meant to be lived for God's glory. Not, not for our own, not because we've figured it out or we've got some scheme or we've got some plan where we can take credit because trust me, you will try to do that. You will try to take credit. We are at our heart glory thieves, right? Seeking glory for ourselves. We must constantly remind ourselves that our life is meant to be lived as a testament to God's glory and greatness so that when people look at us, Look at you, and they look at me. All they can say is the only explanation for this is God's greatness, his power, and his glory. Remember where this began. When God called Abram out of Ur, the Chaldeans, he didn't call him because there was something in Abram that he saw that he was responding to. Right? He didn't go, hey, there's a dude I can work with. There's, there's a chap that's got his stuff straight. I'll take that, fella. No, when he goes to him, Abram is worshiping false gods. He's an idol worshiper in the midst of idol worshipers. And God calls him to himself. Why? For his own glory and renown. God calls him so to glorify himself. Now, what's beautiful about this is Abram gets wrapped up in this. Right? He gets wrapped up in God's desire to glorify himself because God's going to glorify himself by bringing salvation to his people, which that's pretty radical. But it's for God's glory. And our lives are to be lived for nothing less. We are to live not for our own glory, not for our own name, not for our own renown, but for God's glory. That our lives might be a testament to that. That at the end, when you unpack it all, when you look at the the 80, 75, 85, 95 years, however much God gives you, when you unpack it and you string it out, it just becomes this living, breathing testimony to God's greatness, his glory, and his power. That's what I want for my life. That's what I desire for my existence, is that God might be glorified in me. And that's what all of us who call on Christ as Lord and Savior should desire for our lives, is that God would be glorified. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. He made us for his good works that we would walk in him, that he would receive all glory, honor, and praise. I want to close with this illustration that I'm stealing from a coworker of mine, Jeff Thomas. Jeff did a devotional for us on uh, at work on Tuesday. That's one of the great things about where I work is... I work with brilliant, gifted, wonderful men who unpack the scriptures for us on a weekly basis. And Jeff was sharing from Acts chapter 12. He had preached from Acts chapter 12. And he pointed out, he said this wasn't wasn't in the sermon. This was kind of one of those beautiful rabbit trails that you get on when you start to study. Uh, It's kind of like a movie. There's a lot left on the cutting room floor when you you study for a sermon um, because you force us, you people force us to finish in like 45 minutes. If you were more gracious with your time, like three hours, we could give you everything we see. Uh, But in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12 is a transition, it's a transition chapter in Acts, right? Acts chapter 12, uh, the narrative moves away from Peter and Jerusalem to Paul, Antioch, and the ends of the earth, right? It's a big transition. And he noted how the chapter begins, Acts chapter 12 begins with the martyrdom, martyrdom of James, So James, the apostle, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, that chapter begins with his martyrdom. And that martyrdom is covered in one verse in Acts 12. One verse. Jeff said uh, he counted, I think it's like seven words in the Greek. So seven words, James goes over the death of one of the 12, the first 12. Not just one of the 12, but one of the inner three, James, Peter, and John. So in seven verses, James is out of the story. He pointed out how how Stephen gets a whole chapter for his martyrdom, and James gets just one one verse. And the chapter ends with Peter coming out of prison. And Peter goes and he prays, and then it says that Peter went to another town. And that's it for Peter. Like Peter shows back up in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council, but he's, he's he's not the center of that story there. So that's it for Peter in Acts Like, it's over. And, we we have two epistles from him. But his story in the unfolding of the church, the birth of the church, the growth of the church, the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ is summed up with he went to another town. And what Jeff said about that is, like, you got two guys, inner three dudes, foundational people in the church, and their story is summed up as if it was nothing in a moment. And then we begin to realize that all of us, we we are like, uh, we're we're blips on a timeline, right? Of God doing amazing and and wonderful things, right? And and, and the story's not about us, right? It's not about Peter. Like, like it's not, even as great as Peter was, the story's not about Peter. As awesome as James was, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder, as awesome as he was, the story's not about him. As awesome as you are, which I assume you're pretty awesome, the story's not about you. It's about God and his glory. And the fact that we get to be parts of that, the, the fact that we get to be these blips on the timeline that moves through God's progressive revelation of himself, that, that moves through his purposes and plans to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, the fact that we get to be a part of that is, is beyond amazing. But it's not for us and it's not for our glory. It's so that God would be glorified. So that his name would be exalted. Not, not just in, uh, on the earth, but, but throughout all creation. That he would be exalted. That he would be glorified. That his renown would be made known. So, let us joyfully Live for that, to make God's glory known. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be patient when patience seems very difficult. Help us to wait when waiting seems like the very last thing we want to do. And in the midst of that difficulty, reorient our gaze upon you and your glory and our purpose in life, which is to glorify and honor you. And Father, we see this so wonderfully and so beautifully in Christ who came and lived among us, not for his own glory, but for yours to come and to glorify you on earth. So, Father, be with us, I pray. Encourage us towards that end. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hear these words of the the Lord over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week living lives that glorify and honor the God who has called us. Now raise your hands in song with me as we go into the new, new week with the Lord's blessing.